You know, when I was growing up in the church, I always, I always had this idea that you had to be a professional to read the Bible or to teach from the Bible. And so I love that we love to display, um, break that myth for our children so that they realize that, man, like that they have a part in the kingdom of God, not like some future destination, but right now. So God, in his infinite wisdom and out of his great love for us, sent his son Jesus to this earth, not as a man, but as a tiny baby. After studying the intricacies of creation and the complexities of his great design, it doesn't take someone very long to realize that God doesn't do anything by accident. Our whole universe is a part of his great plan, and it's all so perfectly interwoven as a part of a perfect design. And sending Jesus into the earth as a child was no different. It was a part of God's beautiful plan so that we might see the perfect example of Christ from birth to death to resurrection and to ascension. All throughout this process, Jesus grew in strength and maturity. Believe it or not, Jesus was probably not born with a beard. He just probably wasn't. He probably didn't come out of Mary's womb reciting the book of Isaiah. I cannot. You're right, Eric. And he probably, he probably wasn't turning his juice box into wine. See, we don't, we don't have to guess. We can look into Scripture, and we see in Luke 2, verse 39 through 40, where I'm going to prove it, Eric. And it says, I'm just messing with you, where it says, this is on the eighth day of his birth, and it says, When they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee to their own town of Nazareth, and the child grew and became strong and became filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. And if we look at the end of Luke 2 at verse 49, we see Jesus um, at the age of 12 years old. How old is Paxton? 11. So he's just about there. So, and he's tall for 11-year-olds. So Jesus at 12 years old, and he's found teaching in the temple, and he says to Mary, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Now, that's a pretty long intro just to lay out the fact that Jesus was born an infant. But it's important because he didn't remain an infant. He grew in strength and maturity. And through the process, he gained favor among God and man. So, if Christ did not remain an infant, but rather grew in maturity, what do you think he wants for us? That's right. He does not want us to remain spiritual infants, but he wants us to grow in spiritual maturity. That's what Paxton was reading about in Ephesians 4.13, that we might become mature, attaining to the whole measure of fullness of Christ, that we will no longer be infants, tossed back and forth by the waves. As a believer, growth is expected for all of us. Whether you've been walking with the Lord for 40 years or this is your 40th day, we are expected to grow in maturity with Christ. Everyone nod your head, say, this is expected. Yes, good. All right. Good. Good. And just to be clear, spiritual maturity is not the goal. 
if we're careful here, we'll think, okay, I, just, I need to set my eyes on spiritual maturity. But that's not the goal. It is the result of us following Christ. As we walk in obedience like Jesus did, he walked in obedience to the Father and he walked alongside the Holy Spirit. See, however, sometimes instead of walking alongside Jesus, we dig our feet in. Jesus is leading us one way and we dig our feet in refusing to go where Jesus wants us to go. And for some of us, we just want an express pass. Man, that's where I need to go. I just want the shortcut. Jesus, your route takes too long. I'm going to go this way. We want the express pass. Lord, I don't need all those trials, challenges. I'm mature now. Give me a flock to shepherd and I'll take it from here. And sometimes there's times where we know exactly where God is leading us into. It's really clear. And we pull a Jonah and try to get as far away the other way from that. See, when we follow Christ, spiritual maturity will be the outcome of every believer. It is part of the ways that we see transformation, our transformation in Christ. I was just thinking about everyone in this room, and I was just thinking about how we are filled with people in this room who before Jesus made a ton of really stupid and immature decisions. Maturity would be the very last thing tied to our name. That's not some of us, that's all of us. All of us. But now through obedience and walking in Christ, there are many of us who live radically different lives. That maturity is something that we can point to and say, man, like Christ has transformed that person because they were really immature and he has done a maturing work in them. That's what following Jesus does. It produces a maturing, just like it says in Ephesians 4.13, that we all might reach unity in faith and knowledge of Jesus to become mature, complete in the fullness of Christ. This is the context in which Jesus' half-brother James was addressing the church in Jerusalem. The people were facing constant persecution, trials, poverty, and at the same time the church the church was balancing the freedom that they have in Christ, but they needed to be obedient to Christ, not just in word, but also in action. And so for the next five days, we as a church, as we're going through the reading plan, we're going to be reading through the book of James. And we're going to be going through, um, we're going to go through some of these teachings that James has and some of these proverbs that James has. I mean, these are like nuggets of wisdom. It's almost like a the book of Proverbs, but in the New Testament, and it's so specific. It's one of my favorite books of the Bible. In the book of James, we are commanded to be joyful in the face of trials. We're commanded to be steadfast in the face of trials. We are commanded to not be tempted by our own desires. We are commanded to put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness. We are commanded to keep our, cleans hand, our hands clean and our hearts pure. We are commanded to visit the orphans and the widows in their affliction, it says. There's like a big underline, in their affliction, while they're there, to remain unstained from the world. We are commanded to seek out wisdom, but to seek it out in faith. We are commanded to meekly receive the implanted word of God. We are commanded to be doers of the word and not hearers only. We are commanded to be quick to listen, quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to anger. We are commanded to not boast or be false in truth. We are commanded, we are, <laughs> stop. 
We're commanded to bridle our tongue <laughs> and let our, hearts not, let our hearts not be deceived. We're commanded to not speak evil of one another. We're commanded to not grumble against one another so that we will not be judged. We are commanded to love our neighbors as ourselves. We're commanded to confess to each other so that we might pray for each other, so that we might feel, see healing for each other. We are commanded to not show partiality and hold in faith that Jesus Christ our Lord is the Lord of glory. We are commanded to not swear by any name on heaven nor on earth, but rather let our yes be yes and our no be no, so that we will not be under condemnation. We are commanded to submit to God and resist the devil so that he might flee from us. We are commanded to draw near to God so that he will draw near to us. We are commanded to be patient. For the Lord's coming, we are commanded to establish our hearts for the Lord's coming is at hand. We are commanded to be miserable, to weep and to mourn, turning our laughter into mourning and our joy into sorrow. Because we are to approach him in humility before the Lord so that he will exalt us. The rich man, through dishonest gain, is commanded to weep and to howl because his misery is at hand. For those who are struggling, they're commanded to pray. For those who are joyful and cheerful, they're commanded to sing praise. There's over 26 commands in the book of James. And even more uh, words of wisdom. And what we find is that you're going you're gonna to read all of those in the next five days. And it is just too much to cover in one night and one message. We could, we could cover this for weeks on end. Just take one of those and just run with it. And so, like, in preparation for this message tonight, like, I just came before the Lord and I said, Lord, like, how am I supposed to teach through uh, just an exhaustive list like this? There's so much here. And so what I did is I came, I came on my knees and I was just praying about it. And I said, Lord, like, can you just tell me what is that you want our body to mature in this year? And so, like, as weird as it is, very engineering of me, I just, I'm an engineer by trade, and so I had to do an engineering method. And so, man, I prayed for each and every one of you, and I asked, Lord, which of these 26 will bring freedom and bring maturity for this person? And so after praying, I, I made an Excel sheet, and I had it all out, and <laughs> And the three that, the, that were just most abundant is what I'm going to teach on tonight. And so, like, man, like, that's not how we have to listen from the Lord or hear from him, but that's how I really love hearing from him is through an Excel sheet. There was. There was standard deviation. So my heart for our church, for Acts 247 here in Anchorage, is to see a lot of maturity this year, starting with myself and all of us here, that we might mature in our walk with the Lord. And so when we grow into maturity, there will be a maturity in genuine love for one another. There will be growth in obedience through faith in action. And as a body, we will express humility before the Lord. With that being said, please turn in your Bibles to the book of James, chapter 3, verse 9 through 12.
With the tongue, we praise our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse human beings. We have been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth come praise and cursing, my brothers and sisters. This should not be. Can both fresh water and salt water flow from the same spring? My brothers and sisters, can a fig tree bear olives or a grapevine bear figs? Neither can a salt spring produce fresh water. See, James is addressing the church in Jerusalem, and he's speaking the same thing that Paul is speaking to in Corinth. In 1 Corinthians 1, 10 through 11, Paul cries out, and he says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind, in the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. And also Peter. Peter addresses the exiles out of, um, out of Rome, and he says in 1 Peter 3.8, Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. So we see this trend. From the very beginning of the early church, it's clear that there was something that needed to be addressed here when it came to unity. When the eyes of the church fall from Christ, and when we look to man, we see dissension, division, and disregard. We know that at one point there was a debate to whom should people follow. Some people said, well, I'm going to follow Peter. I'm going to follow Paul. I'm going to follow Apollos. We're no different today. When we carry any banner of any individual or any organization, we are putting down our one true calling, which is to not be followers of Jesse or Mike or Brian or Paxton or not even Acts 2.47. We are called to be followers of Jesus Christ. It is him who we follow. It is him who unites us. It's one thing I really love about our church is that we are seriously so diverse. I really love it. It's beautiful. I know that for a fact that there's some of us in this room who are Christian brothers and sisters that if we were not followers of Christ and we were not crazy about Jesus, we'd probably have nothing in common. But <laughs> you didn't need to emphasize it, but no... But it's true. It's true. So, and it's funny because that seems like that should be the most important thing. Like, oh, how can, how can you be friends with him? Or how do you guys have anything in common? It's because the thing that's most important to us is Jesus. And in him, we have something in common. And I just, I just think about, like, the followers of Jesus. They were so diverse. Jesus had the same thing going on. He's got fishermen. Tax collectors, tradesmen, former prostitutes, former Pharisees. He's got wealthy. He's got poor. He's got healthy. He's got sick. They're all so different, but they're united as equal members of the body of Jesus Christ. They were united in their mission to be all about God's glory and the revelation of Jesus Christ as God's son. See, I believe that's what we have in our church, is many believers from different backgrounds with many different personalities, experiences, demeanors. Worldly wisdom would say that these things should divide us and cause us to judge or condemn one another. But in James 4.11 through 13, he says, Brothers and sisters, do not slander one another. Anyone who speaks against a brother or sister or judges them speaks against the law and judges it. When you judge the law, you're not keeping it, but sitting in judgment on it. There's only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy but you, who are you to judge your neighbor? 
And I was just thinking about that, and I was just thinking, you want to know what the sweet part about that is? We have all this diversity. We have all these different personalities. We've got all these different trades, all these different um, things, and we're all united in Christ. It really isn't about our gifting or our skill to be really about unity, right? Like, we don't get a pat on our back and be like, man, we're really excellent at unity, right? We could, but it's really not about our skill at all. Rather, it reveals the working of the one spirit in each of us. It's not about us at all. The same person that raised Jesus from the dead is alive in you and in me. The Holy Spirit reigns in us, drawing us closer to one another. We are being sanctified to Christ for the purpose of glorifying the Father. And all of this, all of this unity, all this oneness is actually an answer to prayer from Jesus. In John 17, we see Jesus asking the Father for this type of unity. He says, Jesus speaking, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That's us. That they also might be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you. That they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me, that the glory that you have given me, I have given them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I and them and you and me, and they may be perfectly one so that the world might know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. This is a response. This is the fruit of Jesus' prayer for us to be united. See, as the church, we are the bride of Christ. We're his bride. He has made for us to be for himself. His love is for us, and it is his desire for our love to be for him and for each other. So we cannot truthfully say, oh, we love Jesus, we just hate his bride. We cannot say that. Those are fighting words. If anyone knows me really well, they'll know they cannot speak really highly and loving towards me and yet tear down my wife. You just can't. I would have a hard time seeing that person as being very loving. And furthermore, I would argue that they really can't love me because so much of who I am is united and one with my wife. How much more so is this true for Jesus and his church? Jesus loved the church so much and wanted us to be united with him that he gave his life to make it happen. That's the extent that he's willing to go to make sure that, that we are one with him and one with each other. So if we're going to grow in maturity, what does it look like to practically show genuine love for each other? Well, James lays out several of these challenges for the church in Jerusalem, and I figured they'd probably work for us here at Acts 2.47. So number one, do not grumble. And like, I feel like we're really quick as a society at grumbling. We know, oh man, someone cut me off. Ugh muttering under your breath. Number two, that we should not slander or use our mouth for evil. Our mouths were made to, number three, encourage each other. Number four, that in our encouragement, that we will learn to pray for each other. And if someone's pouring their heart out to you, you don't go to the next person and be like, oh my gosh, that person, right? No, like that we get to encourage them and then we get to enter into prayer for them. That we get to be quick to patience. 
That's really hard. That's really hard to practice patience with each other. But that's what we're called to do. That we're called to be slow to offense. Man, because we desire to live daily lives with each other, it's really easy to step on each other's toes. I was just thinking, Aaron and Sabrina were out with Bridget and I, and man, this waiter kept stepping on our toes. It was really hard. Yes, literally stepping out on our toes. And I don't know if I was really slow to offense. Like, it was kind of offensive. But we are called to be slow to offense. And we're called to be honest in love with one another. I feel like we have to emphasize this last one. This one's so important because what is... So if you love each other, then we're called in love to be honest with each other. And I just want to caution the justice warriors out there because your words have consequences. And if you're going around dropping truth bombs on everyone, I'm just guessing that you might not be speaking in love. You guys laugh, but there's another hand, right? And so on the other hand, I want to challenge some of us who are quiet all the time who struggle with being honest with people, not to be silent and actually be real with people. But you got to be real in love so that there might be growth and that there will be there won't be any division in your heart. It is not loving when you see your, your brother or sister heading down a path that's going to lead them to destruction and you say, well, I, I don't, I don't want to step on their toes or I don't want to offend them. No, that is absolutely not loving. If my child is going out into a street, I'm going to tell them to stop. And if they don't listen, I'm going to scream it. And then I'm going to go get them. That's the kind of love that we're talking about. So that's what we're called to. A mature believer grows in their love for each other. Second thing I feel that the Lord is calling us as a church to mature in is our obedience through faith in action. Our obedience through faith in action. This is an area, if we're not careful, we could really quickly misunderstand the intent and aim for a display of actions to validate our faith. Can you think of a group in the Bible that were dedicated to showcasing their actions publicly so they'd be viewed with people and valued by their amount of their faith? Pharisees, right? Yes, yeah. Stop. Security, right up now. <laughs> but no, exactly. I mean, we got Pharisees, we got scribes. They were very good at righteous actions, but it was empty and often misplaced. Their faith was not in God, but in themselves. Jesus condemns this type of behavior. He calls them a brood of vipers. He accuses them of being about themselves and not about the people. So action without faith, is not a sign of maturity. In the same respect, faith without action is not real faith. The quality of faith is revealed through our actions. A good example of this would be the teacher of the law mentioned in Matthew 8. He says to Jesus, I'll follow you wherever you go. Jesus looks around and he replies, okay, foxes have dens, birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. The guy's gone. Where'd he go? Wherever you go, he says. The man said the right thing, 
but his lack of action revealed that his faith is not genuine. For us to mature in our faith as a church, we need to learn to distinguish the difference between the shortcomings of faith without action or action without faith and recognize the value of genuine, authentic faith that produces action. This is not legalism. This is obedience. This is why James says, Be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourself. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in the mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was, looks like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. I like James because he does like all the arguing for us. Like he, he's heard all the stuff, right? I mean, you got to think about what like preceded this letter, right? Like James is like, oh man, I'm hearing a lot of grumbling going on. I'm hearing a lot of um, people really announcing their actions, but not necessarily seeing that it's placed, placed in a place of faith. Or some people that are really, you know, you would think that there's a lot of, they're speaking highly in faith and saying the right things, but then why are the poor being neglected? Why are the widows being neglected? Why are the orphans being neglected? And so James is just addressing these issues. He's doing all the arguing for us. He knew that this would be a hard challenge and that there would be resistance. There were many who claimed that they were of the faith, and yet those were, they were showing partiality. They were the ones not caring for the widows and orphans. They were the ones who had the means to provide for the poor and the needy, but they did not. This is why James says in chapter 2, verse 14 through 19, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things they need for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, it is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Yeah, man, that message, even the demons believe that and shudder. You know what that means? It means that faith goes beyond intellect. The demons knew that God was one. It means that faith goes beyond emotion. The demons are shuddering. They must understand fear. It means that faith is about, it leads us to obedience. James says that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Furthermore, just as the body apart from the spirit is dead and also faith apart from works is dead, Whenever I think of faith, I always, like, I always think in terms of metaphors or analogies. Whenever I think of faith, I always think about a, this chair. Bridget and I we were talking about the difference between belief and faith. And if just, I just want you to imagine this invisible chair right here. There's a chair. It's not invisible. It's, you have to imagine it. And so it's, the invisible chair would not be, Im um, imaginary chair would not be invisible. It would be real. You could see it. And so you look at this chair and you say, man, like, okay, you study it. You get your protractor out. You get your um, ruler out, and you, you check it, and you do an evaluation, a complete analysis. You do a write-up on this paper, and you really know this chair well, and you understand its limits, its bounds, its means, and you say, yes, 
this chair could handle this weight. It could handle this much vibration without breaking. Here's the tensile stress. Here's the structural ability. All of these things. But if you don't sit in it, your faith isn't really revealed. It's not until you sit in it that you actually believe. It's revealed, man, I actually trust this chair to hold me. The sitting is that act that changes belief from faith. It's one thing to say, man, Lord, I believe that you will provide for me. I believe that you will provide for me financially. But to actually lean on the Lord, to sit in that, is totally different. If you say with your mouth, Lord, I trust you, Jehovah Jireh, right? And then you go and try to find a job where you can work 60 to 80 hours a week so that you can make the money to provide for yourself. Who are you putting your faith in? We should obey God's commands, first and foremost, to be doers of the word and not hearers only. Let's not give a whole lot of lip service. Let's let our faith be heard but seen through action. You know, a good example of this is Bible studies. And like Bible studies are really good to study God's word. But I, I heard of a group one time, and they did a Bible study on the book of James. And my friend was telling me about this, and they were saying, hey, I'm going through James. We just got done. It was really awesome. Man, we walked through this great 10-week um, great study on it. It was really sweet. And they were on to a, their next Bible study. And I said, so are you guys, how did you guys uh, wrestle with some of those things? Like, what is it producing? Are you guys um, got a plan to, like, minister maybe to the orphans or the widows? Or, like, what does that look like to take care of the needy or the poor? And they're like, well, we're going to the next Bible study. And it was just, like, over the head. And I realized, man, like, let us not be a people like that. Man, like we're going to be in the word this year. Let it bear fruit. Right? I would love for no one, I would love for the world to not know that we're doing a reading plan. But they just see, man, they must be doing psalms because everyone out of that church seems to be singing praises to God. Or they must be in James or something because, man, they're really answering these commands to, to not just be hearers of the word but also to be doers. Man, wouldn't it be awesome if, if like that was our testimony, that it wasn't just lip service, but it was actually something they could witness with their eyes. We need to be doers of the word and not hearers only. Two, we need to care for the broken in their affliction. I really like, I never caught that before, in their affliction. Sometimes I think we want to care for people, and but we recognize like, man, when they get out of this, then, yeah, then we can maybe walk them to a healthier place. But it actually says in their affliction. That means like if someone's burning up on fire, that you're going into the fire, you're into the flames, you're grabbing them, you're putting the fire out. If someone's in the hospital, you're going into the hospital and you're visiting them. If someone is mourning, you're mourning with them. You're weeping, you're praying with them. In their affliction, we're caring for people. We cannot say that we care for the lost, the hurt, and the broken and not care for the hurt, and the lost, and the broken. Number three, we're to remain unstained from the world. Man, I hope we look a lot different than the world. If we say we follow Christ, if, 
if we dedicate ourselves to doing what Christ did, and if that same spirit that raised Christ is in us, man, I hope the world can tell. I hope that we remain unstained from the world. Do we really believe that God is an almighty judge and that we believe that every sin, every sin that we commit is just adding to the weight that Jesus carried on the cross? Our actions should tell a, a different story. So in order to personalize this, this point, I just wanted to leave you with these two questions. Just sit in this. I, I don't like awkward silences because I always feel like I'm supposed to fill it with talking. But we're going to have an awkward silence here. So the first question I just want to pose before you, this is just about you, not the person sitting behind you or beside you in front of you, just you. What does your action speak about your faith? If people were to make a determination on your faith by only your actions, what would it be? The second one, what does your faith speak about your actions? You say one thing, you profess it, you might believe it, but what does your faith speak about your actions? Those two questions like wrecked me. I was like, oh my gosh. So a mature believer, they grow in their love for one another. A mature believer grows in their faith through obedience. And finally, a mature believer grows in humility before the Lord. It'd be really easy to read a book like James and take away a to-do list. I mean, I listed off 26 different commands. So you could take those and say, all right, I'm just going to ace these. Good luck, right? But it mentions a lot of action, a lot of doing, but James frames this whole letter in the, this context by in which we are doing these things. See, there's a battle of perspectives. James was highlighting that anyone who was resting on their own plans or their own strength was being boastful. In chapter 4, verse 13 through 16, he says, Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town, spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time, then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. I always get a kick out of that, if the Lord wills. I asked Dylan if he would come here tonight and... He didn't tell me yes. I, I was hoping he just, I was like, man, Dill, just tell me yes. And he says, if the Lord wills. And I love that. He's owned that. It's something like he can't speak for himself. He's saying, man, like it's up to the Lord. But I find that it's interesting that this was an issue for the early church, this boasting, because I would say that today we live in an exaggerated form of this, right? So much of our culture is about how we present ourselves, our accomplishments, our ability. And our favorite stories are typically where someone who comes from nothing and makes something out of themselves. We love those stories. Picking themselves up by their bootstraps. That's the American dream, right? That if you just put your mind to something, that you can accomplish anything. You know what? That sounds really nice. It's actually very inspirational. I mean, I love that type of stuff. But if we're being completely real, often the center of those stories 
is all about self. It's all about the empowerment of man and his abilities. See, James makes the argument for our, that our lives are like a mist. Here today, gone tomorrow. There's a pride that comes from thinking too highly of ourselves. We deny God's sovereignty. We deny God's supremacy. And often we don't ask for God, we don't ask God for wisdom because we don't agree with his wisdom. We enter into sin because we don't see God as an all-powerful judge that demands holiness. The world serves the narrative that Satan would have us believe, that God is not an all-powerful, that he's not all-powerful, that he's not infinitely good, and that he's not for us. See, and if we're not careful, we as Christians can buy into this narrative. We can, we can begin to think too little of God and too much of ourselves. It's all about perspectives. When we make ourselves God, we boast in ourselves and our works. We consider ourselves wise so we don't seek wisdom. We seek pleasure. We desire our name to be exalted. We hide, we hide our deficiencies and point out the deficiencies of others. Ultimately, we've exchanged our love for the Lord for the love of the world. I, I tried to figure out a different way to say this, but we have committed spiritual idolatry against God. He set us apart, made us in his image, declared that we are his bride, betrothed us to himself, and while he was gone to prepare a place for us, we have exchanged lasting eternal delight in him for temporary earthly pleasures that evaporate like a mist in the air. James states it bluntly in chapter 4. You adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is no purpose that the scripture says, God, he yearns jealously over the spirit that he's made to dwell in us, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourself, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let our laughter, laughter be turned to mourning and our joy to gloom, that we are to humble ourselves before the Lord and that he will exalt you. This turning laughter into mourning, it's not because he's against laughter. It's because there's a seriousness to our offense that we do against God. It's good for us to be joy, joyful. But man, it is so much better for us to recognize our right standing before a holy God. That we might humble ourselves before the Lord. Not live on the grace, but that we might live on the, the sacrifice that Jesus did on the cross. We're waging war through the changing of our perspective. We need to fight against the narrative of who the world says we are and who the world says that God is. A good diagram that I like to reference to help us have a right understanding of who we are, who God is, and maturing Christians is this. It's going to be hard because I'm looking at it, but I'm going to try to. So if you look at this line on your, what side is this? Is this your left? On your left, my right hand. On stage left, yes. Is that stage left? Oh, don't do that. Okay, so if you look. If you look on this side, 
where it says salvation. If you think of, man, it's salvation when you first recognize, man, I am such a sinner. And God, you are so good, and I'm so not. And you first moment, that moment, and you realize you need salvation. That's kind of where we start. And if you work your way from this side to this side, you see in different moments where you start looking up, and maybe a couple years down the line, you're looking and you realize, God, you're so much holier than I ever thought possible. And you look at yourself and you say, man, I'm so much more of a sinner than I ever recognized. But see, you see how the cross keeps getting bigger and bigger? It gets bigger because that means that the work that Jesus did on the cross is that much more. That gap, man, we didn't even understand how big the gap was between uh, our, our needing salvation and how holy God is, the requirement of his holiness. But as we get further and further along, the cross becomes that much more, that much more, that much more. See how that perspective changes? I never would think, I've been a believer for over 20 years, I never would believe the things that convict me today would have convicted me. Man, like, when I was a believer, I thought it was like, okay, like, I don't want to be a sinner. I don't want to go to hell. I want to be saved by Jesus. I thought all the bad things were, like, on the, that list of 10, right? All right, just don't kill anyone. That's one. I've got one down. Nine more to go. Like, that was my understanding. I was just like, man, there's rules. Follow these 10 rules, and you're good. But as we get further and further on, we, we realize how, how much Jesus is actually asking from us. All of it. Anything else. If there's anything else we're leaning on, we see, man, like our eyes go up and we say, God, are you kidding me? You're that good? How? Like, how is it possible? We, we study creation. We say, God, you're so bigger than we thought. I never realized the intricacies my wife's in um, cellular biologies, and she's telling me all about the cells and like the intricacies of God's design, and it's screaming his name. It's all about him. And I say, God, like, how is this? You just had such a plan, and you just spoke it? What? You're forming out of the sand, and you're breathing life into this, and like, you just knew what you were doing so much. We read the Bible, and we see from the very beginning, and like, God wasn't surprised. He knew what man was going to do. And like it all screams Jesus. And we just recognize, man, God, you're so good. And we look to ourselves and we say, Lord, we need so much help. See, when we change our perspective like this, it leads us to a place of recognizing our sinfulness, which leads us to a place of true repentance. Lord, I want to repent from that now. I didn't know it could be a sin to watch TV too much or to stay up too late. But the Lord convicts me and says, Jesse, you're not being a good steward with your time. I didn't know that like, maybe not being like the most intent father was a sin until the Holy Spirit says, Jesse, I've given you these children to raise them up. You're wasting it. Over and over and over, the Spirit brings up new things, and you're just like, Lord, that too? That too? I, I can't do that. And he says, I know, but I will help you. And so, man, like our lives should be just this wonderful balance of great amount of repentance and like just worship. God, you're so good. Oh, Lord, I need you again. 
and over and over. People should think we're out of our minds. We're, we're, we're on our knees in repentance and we're up here with our hands and they're not, they don't know what we're doing. We draw near to him and he draws near to us. We humble ourselves and he exalts us. We lean on the Lord and he takes our little faith and cracks it open and increases it. Man, I love that. I like what Aaron was praying tonight or uh, what he mentioned in worship. Man, I don't want any more disbelief. Get rid of all of it. That should be our heart cry. Lord, I believe, I believe. Help my unbelief. As a church, we grow in maturity. We should desire to be more like Christ. Philippians 2, 5 through 8 says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in that likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That's what, that's what we're called into. That's what we're called into is to be like Christ. We call ourselves Christians with our mouth, but our actions show us to be Christians. So tonight, as the worship team comes back up, we're going to kind of do something. We're going we're gonna to close in prayer. And I was just praying about this and I was just like, Lord, like, like, how do we, like, how can this be done? How can we do any of this? And I like it. it actually, in James, it says, man, if any seeks wisdom, let him ask, but let him ask in faith. And so that's what we're going to do. We're going to pray. And this is awkward for some of us, um, but what I want to do is, man, like, I just want, like, groups of, like, three to six and just if there's someone sitting by themselves, either invite them to your group to come pray, whether it's in your row or the people behind you or whatever, but like no one should be praying alone. And so kind of tough, kind of weird, kind of awkward, but like I'm, I'm learning it's okay to be awkward. It's okay to be okay with the awkward. And so I want you to be praying, and I want you to be praying about these three things for our church, that you will be praying that we genuinely show love for each other, that it'll be genuine, not like a to-do list, but it'll be genuine love for each other. That, number two, that we will be a people of faith in action. Not just speakers of the word, but that we'll actually do it. Number three, as a church, that we would have genuine humility before the Lord. That we would be all about his glory and not our own. And so, you can be very generic as you pray. You can be very vulnerable and open. But I just want to encourage you to pray. And we're going to pray in groups. And Sabrina and Aaron are going to be kind of probably playing a little lightly in the back and then kind of draw us back into worship. And we'll close together in worship.